If you have a Bible with you, I want to encourage you to open it up to an unusual book to look at at Christmas time, the first book in the Bible, the book of Genesis, chapter 12, and we'll get to that in a few minutes. Uh, We have the children with us today, and so if you're 15 or under, would you, I'm sorry, I apologize, if you're 15, I know you're not a child, I get it, but if you're 15 or under, do you want to raise your hand so we can all see how many of you are here this morning? Awesome, so glad to have you, and uh, hopefully you'll, you'll get some things out of this, but to start off, we have a quiz for you. Can I get an amen? No grades, uh, no penalties, no nothing. Just a fun Christmas quiz. It's, if you have a Bible with you, you can turn to Matthew 1 and 2 and Luke 1 and 2. All the answers to the quiz are in there. And we're going to start six questions. And we're going to start out really, really easy. And then they're going to get progressively harder. All right, you ready? So if you're 15, you're 15 or, old, or younger, younger. Uh, what I'd like you to do, if you know the answer to the question, just raise your hand and I'll call on, on you. Not yet. We didn't ask the question yet. And, uh, and we'll see if you get it right. Okay? First question. So the story of Christmas is all about a baby. What's the baby's name? Jesus. Is that right? Is that right? Okay, that's right. He's, they say you're right. All right, next question. Where was the baby Jesus born? That's true. I didn't specify. I was looking for the name of the town. Bethlehem. Is that right? Jury. Okay, he's got it right. Listen's a little harder. This is also the name of a town. Jesus' mom and stepdad lived in what town before they went to Bethlehem and then moved back there, and this is where Jesus was, grew up. Jerusalem, jury, not quite. Another attempt. Raise your hand. There's an adult that still wishes she was in school. Maybe you could go for one of these children who don't want to go to school. That's uh, jury. Is that correct? Nazareth, all right. That gets a little bit harder. Name one of the shepherds that came to worship Jesus. Name one of the shepherds that came to worship Jesus. Hmm, no hands going up. Anybody older than 15 can help us. Jesus. That's the typical Sunday school question, answer. If you don't know what it is, just go for Jesus. You ever hear that joke? Sunday school teacher asks, okay, what's gray and furry and has a bushy tail? Jesus? I, I'm sorry, it was a trick question because the Bible doesn't tell us the names of any of the shepherds. All right, next one won't be trick. I don't think. How many wise men were there? How many magi were there? 
This person jumping out of their seat. Yes, you. Three. Jury? They say no. Anybody else want to take a shot? Four. All right, it's kind of a trick question. Because the Bible doesn't tell us. The reason that we often think of three wise men is because there were three gifts. And that brings us to our next question. Name one of the gifts the wise men brought. Frankincense. Frank brought his two cents. All right, that's right. Right, jury? Yes? Okay, sorry, I got ahead of you. Um, One other gift. Myrrh? Yes, that's a good answer. I've been looking over here a lot. Last gift. Gold. Yes? Got it right. Give Give yourselves a hand, would you? Nice job. All right. So this morning we're going to talk about, we're going to get eventually to talk about the Christmas promise. Do you want to catch my phone? Christmas promise. But first of all, we're going to talk about the Christmas pageant. What's a pageant? Well, it used to be pre-COVID thing, major production that a lot of churches would have around Christmas time or Easter time, stage production. And I was thinking about it this year. There are a lot of people, both in the United States and around the world, who celebrate Christmas. In fact, uh, interesting thing, I went online a couple of years ago and said, how do people celebrate Christmas around the world? And discover there are a lot of people who aren't followers of Jesus who celebrate Christmas. And that's true in our, in our own country. And, and so if you can think about what goes on in your house over Christmas as a pageant. There's a secular Christmas pageant. So you might go to someone's house and drive up into their driveway and you see lights draped over the shrubbery. You see lights strung around the uh, main door. And if you go inside that house, you might see a tree in the living room or in the family room lit up. Uh, You see gifts under the tree. You see some stockings hanging near the fireplace or you don't have a fireplace, they're just hung on the wall, emblazoned with the names of the children uh, that are in the house. Uh, That family might be getting together with extended family for Christmas dinner. Uh, It might be that those people in the house might be going to company Christmas banquets. And that's it. Those things that they have done as a family that are traditional, that kind of stir up the interest and intrigue of the season, but that's it. When all of those trimmings go away, when all of those things are put back in the attic and the Christmas cards are thrown away or or put in a stack, that's it. That's a secular Christmas version. Now, the sacred Christmas version may look very much like it, If you're a follower of Jesus and we go to your house, we might find the same, very same things. You have lights outside. You have a Christmas tree inside. You have packages under the tree. You have stockings hanging here and there. You're going to get together with family on the day of Christmas or soon thereafter. 
And you have the very same things, but it's not the same thing. Because you have a treasure that goes beyond the trappings of Christmas. That this cube, this gold cube, represent this morning the treasure that followers of Jesus have, but no one else has. Now, you know, we, say, we talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ as uh, that ought to be our greatest treasure, way above the other things that you value. We all value some things in life. It may be that woman that you have your arm around this morning or that man you have your arm around. It might be those children that are watching online with you. It might be your mom or dad or a favorite friend. It might be all of your friends. I cherish this. It might be your 401k or your portfolio or the money you've been able to save over the years. It might be a beautiful home that you've lived in for a long time. It might be your job, your career. But all of those things are temporary, aren't they? The reason that we commend people to make Jesus their treasure is because he's the only thing that's permanent. My wife and I, as we've gotten older, we now married 48 years, and we look at, at the likelihood that one of us is going to leave the other one at some point. One of us is going to pass away before the other one, and that bond will be broken. Jesus says in heaven, people neither marry nor are given in marriage. You're going to, you're, you're, your children are going to grow up, move out of your house. You're going to pass away. Maybe they're going to pass away. That bond's going to be broken. You're going to fire, get fired from your job, quit your job, or re retire from your job. It doesn't matter what it is that you value in life. Sooner or later, you're going to lose it. Except the treasure. Except the treasure. God's son traded heaven for earth. He traded glory for humility. He traded power for weakness. And John says in John 1.14 that he came here, became human, and made his home with us. God's son who had always lived, always existed, God's son came, became a human being, took on flesh, went into a woman's womb, was born, and became a person like you and I. And it wasn't just so that there could be an odd, curious story to be recounted every De December 25th down through the ages. It wasn't so that there would be some sort of end-of-the-year celebration where we'd have an excuse to get together with our family members and, and eat a lot and watch football. It was way, way beyond that. When the angel Gabriel came to Joseph, Mary's fiance, that night, he said this about the baby that Mary was carrying. He wasn't sure, Joseph wasn't sure he wanted to marry Mary. How is she pregnant? Whose child is it? It's not his. Don't be afraid to take Mary to be your wife. Because the child that she's carrying is a child that the Holy Spirit created. And he will save his people from their sins. He will save his people from their sins. Now 
what I want to do this morning may seem odd to you. I want us to take this treasure, and those of you who know Jesus Christ, this is significant for you. I hope it will be. I want us to take this treasure, and I want us to go behind the curtain and to look at the promise that was made. Because frankly, the promise that was made was not made to most of you. It wasn't made to me. The promise that we've been the beneficiaries of, this treasure that we have for all eternity, didn't come to us as a promise. And that's where we get to Genesis chapter 12. Now, all of us know about making promises. If you're a child and you want to go play at your friend's house down the road, you promise your mom to be back for dinner by 5.30. It's a relatively small promise. If you break it, consequences might be no dessert or just a frustrated mom. We make a promise to a friend that we won't tell the secret that he shared with us. And if we break it, we might lose a friend, might be some other consequences, it might create some problem for our friend, but they're relatively small promises. On the day that my son joined the United States Army, we took him to the transfer station at Mechanicsburg, and we watched as he and several other recruits made a promise to defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic. Now that's a promise that has major consequences. He was promising to lay down his life if need be. On November 25th, 1972, my wife and I stood in the front of a brand new church in Refton, Pennsylvania and made enormous promises to each, to each other that had incredible consequences. Not just promises to stick with each other for the rest of our lives, but the promises to love and to serve each other. And those promises have had big consequences. There are small, con there are small promises and there are large promises, and then there is the promise of God, who made these promises to a man named Abram. Genesis 12, verse 1. The Lord had said to Abram, and this was about 4,000 years ago, leave your native country, your relatives, and your father's family and go to the land that I will show you. Now at this time, Abram, who later was named Abraham by God, founder of the Jewish nation, lived in what is today Iraq. And God said, I want you to leave Iraq. I want you to leave your family. I want you to go to a new country. I'll get to tell you about later. And then he makes some amazing promises to him. Verse 2, I will make you into a great nation. And I will make you, I will bless you and make you famous and you will be a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt. All the families on earth will be blessed through you. Now this was mind-blowing to Abraham because in ancient times you became a nation not in the aftermath of a war and the vict victorious powers moved the boundary line of your country. You became a nation through a family. In other words, you would have children and then your children's children would your children would have children, and then your children's children would have children, and the, the, 
the family would grow larger and larger and eventually become a clan and then become a tribe and then become a nation when it became large enough. And that was the case with Abram. Or at least that's what God said would be the case. Abram's scratching his head, though, because Abram doesn't have any children. How can you become a nation, let alone a great nation, which he probably understood to be a big nation, and you have no children? Not only is this nation going to be great, but he's going to make this nation famous, and he's going to bless you, and you will be a blessing to others. And all the families on earth will be blessed through you. Those are the two lines we don't want to miss. The end of verse 2, you will be a blessing to others. In other words, the people group that comes from you. And the end of verse 3, all the families or all the nations on earth will be blessed through you. You say, well, what's that have anything to do? What's that have to do with us? This is to the Jewish people. Most of you probably aren't Jewish. You're Gentile. And the, Jew, the Jews saw the world through a very, very black and white lens. There's us and then everybody else. I'm Jewish. Everybody else is Gentile. They still see the world that way today. You and I would say there's us. Maybe we see ourselves as Americans. And then there's Canadians. And then there's Pakistanis. And then there's the Angolans. And then there's the Chinese. And then there's the Indonesians. There's us. And then there's all kinds of other breakdowns and we look at each other ethnically the same way there's us and then there's other ethnicities but for Jews two us and them and so what does this have to do with Gentiles say when God's speaking to the first Hebrew the first Jew the father of the Jewish nation the father of Israel he's going to have a son one day Isaac Isaac's going to have a son one day, Jacob. Jacob's going to have 12 sons one day, Gad, Asher, Reuben, Judah, the lot. And they're eventually going to become the nation of Israel. So what does this promise have to do with people who are not Jewish? Galatians chapter 3, beginning of verse 6. Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians chapter 3. Verse 6, now Paul was writing to, Jew, to Christians, many of whom were from Jewish backgrounds. And these Christians were, they were getting a little uneasy about their newfound faith in Jesus. And they're thinking, well, I get that Jesus rose from the dead. I get that he died for my sins. But, but maybe, as a, especially as a Jew, that I should still make sure that I'm keeping the the law of Moses, I still, should still make sure that uh, I'm eating kosher. And they're getting a little wobbly in this Jesus-only faith. And so Paul writes this, beginning of verse 6, in the same way, Abraham believed God, Abram, later called Abraham, he believed God and God counted him as righteous because of his Jewish keeping of the law of Moses. Is that what it says? Because of his faith. People, because of their faith, they are seen as righteous in God's eyes. Abraham was seen as righteous in God's eyes, not because he kept the law. After all, the law wouldn't come for another 500 years. And if you were a Jewish person, even 
more than Moses, Abraham counted. And so he's pointing out that Abraham's rightness with God, his relationship with God was based on his faith, not keeping the law. And so he says the real children of Abraham then, and you might put in parentheses, rather than having, an, an, having Abraham as your ancestor, the real children of Abraham are those who put their faith in God. And then he continues. What's more, the scriptures, the Bible, the words of the prophets, looked forward to this time, meaning in Paul's day, when God would declare the Gentiles to be righteous because of their faith. Now, for a Jewish person, that was unthinkable. How could a Gentile have the kind of faith that we have as Jewish people? God proclaimed this good news, or if you have a more literal translation, this gospel. God proclaimed this gospel Wait a minute, in the gospel, Jesus comes to earth, dies, raised to life again for sinners like me? Isn't that the gospel? Listen to what he says. God proclaimed this gospel to Abraham long ago, 2,000 years before, when he said, all nations will be blessed through you. Now he quotes Genesis 12, 3, what we just read. He, quote, he proclaimed the gospel to Abraham long ago, saying all nations will be blessed through you. In other words, there's going to come a man someday through the line of Abraham who's going to come to planet Earth and go to the cross and buy back people for himself to be reconciled. To his father. So all who put their faith in Christ share the same blessing Abraham received because of his faith. So, what does that have to do with our conversation today at Christmas? Probably most of you know the word anti Semitism, it means to not like the Jewish people. And anti-Semitism, unfortunately, has a long history. And unfortunately, most of that history is Christian. Since about the mid-2017, crimes and attacks against Jewish people in this country, even more so in Europe, have gone up about 18%, represented by the shooting at the synagogue in Pittsburgh two years ago where a gunman came into the synagogue and killed 11 people who were praying. When I say the long history of anti-Semitism is rooted in Christianity, it's a tragic, horrific, shameful piece of our legacy but it's there. And to appreciate how it got there, we look and read the gospel accounts and we see the Jewish leaders especially were fomenting the death of Christ. They're trying to get the Roman rulers to do what they cannot do, what they don't have authority to do. And so the early church looked back and pointed their finger at Jewish people and said, you're responsible for Jesus' death. 
even though what they should have done is gone like this, I'm responsible for Jesus' death. After all, Jesus had to die because of my sin. And furthermore, many of the Jewish people rejected Jesus as the Messiah. And so in the succeeding years, leaders of the church became more and more outspoken about their hostility toward the Jewish people. Some of the greatest church fathers and later church reformers in our history have written horrible things about the Jewish people and urged their followers to do horrible things to Jewish people. Ambrose, Augustine, Martin Luther, John Calvin. Even during the Second World War, Dutch Mennonites, I'm Mennonite background, Dutch Mennonites served with the Nazi party in Germany. This is especially bad from about the mid-fourth century on. Early that century, um, Christianity was declared to be the, the religion of the Roman Empire, which opened up the opportunity for the Christian church to make official their enmity against the Jewish people. This, for example, came out of the First Council of Nicaea in 325 A.D., one of the first major Christian councils. They actually put this in writing. They're speaking about the Jewish people saying, their hands having been stained with crime, the minds of these wretched men are necessarily blinded. Let us then have nothing in common with the Jews who are, who are our adversaries, avoiding all contact with that evil way, who, after having compassed the death of the Lord, being out of their minds, are guided not by sound reason, but by an unrestrained passion. Wherever their innate madness carries them, a people so utterly depraved, and on and on and on. By, by the way, does this sound like a people that Christians would desire to reach with the good news of Jesus Christ? And the legacy that's left today of hostility against Jewish people can be traced directly to the Christian church. Not all quarters, not every Christian, but even Islam. Muhammad, by and large, co-opted a lot of Jewish writings and Christian writings and kind of fabricated his own faith. And the tragedy of all this is that this was never Jesus' intent, nor was this the apostles' intent. Read with me what Jesus himself says in Matthew 15, verse 24. I was sent only to help God's lost sheep, the people of Israel. Do you ever remember reading that before? That Jesus came into the world and he made a point of saying, I'm here primarily for... Israel. Now he didn't mean that there, he did mean that he, there wasn't a Gentile mission coming. It's just these three and a half years I'm concentrating on Israel, Jewish people. And with a few notable exceptions, he did. There was some Gentile ministry, but he envisioned that down the road further. I've come here, eyes focused on Israel. And then Paul and the other apostles fan out all across the Roman Empire and beyond 
with the good news that Jesus died and rose again to save sinners. And what did he think about the mission to the Jewish people? Romans chapter 1, verse 16. I am not ashamed of this good news or this gospel about Christ. It is the power of God at work, saving everyone who believes. The Jew first. And also the Gentile. My point is, you and I, if you're a follower of Jesus, we owe a great debt to the Jewish people. To honor them, to thank them, to make much of them, to go to them, to reach them. Because this promise that we're the beneficiaries of, was given to Abraham's people. I got a very unusual phone call about two, two and a half years ago. It was my cousin, who's now the president of uh, our family business, my grandfather's family business. And he said, Keith, he said, I, he sounded a little flabbergasted. He said, I have a man standing in front of me from Korea who says that he would like to meet members of our family something to do with an ancestor of ours that came to Korea. I was at the office. I didn't, I didn't know who this was, and I didn't understand what he was about, and I said, I, I, I can't come. He said, okay. And in several weeks' time, my cousin forwarded to me a, a slew of information that this man had sent to him via email. And I didn't pay much attention to it until I got an email some months later from a woman in Korea by the name of So Yun Lee. And she begins to tell me about this great, great uncle of mine who went to Korea in the early days when Korea was just literally first opening up as a mission field, the late 1800s. His name was Eli Bar Landis. Like me, from a Mennonite background, he went to the University of Pennsylvania, School of Medicine, became a physician, came under the influence of the Episcopal Church there, was baptized there, and eventually became a priest. And then was recruited by a British priest to go to Korea. And there, in 1891, he helped plant the first Anglican church in Seoul, Korea. He established the first hospital there, St. Luke's Hospital. And this is what this woman said to me. She's part of a ministry called Korean Bible Road, where they're trying to trace the history of the gospel coming to Korea. And she said, we thought we should share our thanks to the Landis family and the church that sent him to Korea in 1890. And so on the day commemorating the anniversary of his death, he died at age 33 in Korea, a group of seven Koreans... My wife and I, a couple of my cousins, my sister, my mom and dad, met in the treehouse room down here at Keystone. And I said a few things, and there was a Korean pastor that said a few things, and they gave presents to us. And I thought, here, here I am, I don't even know my ancestors. And one of the problems, I think, as Americans is we don't know our background, we don't know where we've come from or what our families have done. But here's a people group 
somewhere else that wanted to thank those who brought the gospel to them. He's not alive, but let me thank the family. And I thought about what we ought to be doing as disciples of Jesus Christ who are the recipients of the great treasure. And to close out our time together this morning, I'd like us to pray together as we think about the Jewish people. And Father, I first want to pray a prayer of repentance. God, please forgive us for the sins of our fathers and our great-grandfathers and our great-great-great-great-grandfathers and our own sins against the Jewish people. We may not even know any Jewish people, but when we think about them, we may think ungodly things about them. We, not, may, not, we may have a, a, a chip on our shoulder against them or think insulting things that are stereotypes in the culture that other people speak of. I ask your forgiveness that we have not made a concentrated effort to reach Jewish people. It seems like the main folks who are trying are those who have come to faith out of the Jewish faith. And forgive us for leaving it just to them. I want to pray a prayer of thanksgiving for including those of us who are Gentiles in the promise a prayer of thanksgiving that even though many Jewish people turned against Jesus, that you cast the net wider still and included so many of us. I want to pray a prayer of honor and blessing on the Jewish people and and give them what is due them for Surely the call that you have on their lives, as the scripture says, will not be turned back. And then lastly, I want to pray a prayer of hope that you will make many, many of the descendants of Abraham yet your children through Jesus Christ. And pray that we, the church, would be part of that endeavor and effort to see many come to Christ. I pray, Lord, just for our own open hearts to be available for us to be used in expanding the kingdom in such a way that more and more and more of the descendants of Abraham become followers of Jesus Christ. Yeshua HaMashiach. Amen.